Welcome to Food Chat, a weekly show that's all about food production, including farming, ranching, processing, and basically all things involved in getting food from the field to your plate. Now, let's get you reconnected to your food, and here are your hosts, Greg Bloom and Chef Jackson Lamb. Talk about an uphill battle, 2,000 acres of beans and cattle, but he don't ever get rattled. Welcome to another edition of Food Chat. Food Chat is all about connecting people to the foods that they love. I'm Chef Jackson Lamb. I've got 35 years experience in the restaurant and hospitality industry. And my co-host, Greg Bloom... Greg, what is your experience in this industry? Oh, thank you, Chef Jackson. Well, thanks for asking. I have been working in six different USDA food plants over the last 32 years. So I've learned a lot about food production and working with farmers and ranchers and the people who actually grow food. So I kind of know that side of the business. Very good. Well, in in any event, since we are Food Chat, we take a look at all kinds of food. Today we're looking at hops, barley, and a few other items that are used to make beer. Yeah, agricultural products are used to make beer, believe it or not, and we're going to talk about it. Very good. Hey, everybody, our guest today is uh, Eli Kolodny from the Odell Brewing Company. He's calling in from Fort Collins, Colorado. Good morning, Eli. How are you today? Good morning, Greg. Good morning, Chef Jackson. I'm, I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Terrific. Say, listen, um, let's get right into it, uh, Eli. The beer industry has exploded in the last 20 years, and of course, I think Colorado is at the forefront of it. Um, What is your experience? How did you get to this point? I mean, Odell's has some great brand name recognition, Um, one of my favorite beers also, but can you tell us, you know, how does somebody get started in the beer industry? (laughs) Uh, that's a good question. Uh, we get that quite a bit. Um, me, my personal journey is um, I used to work at the uh, Department of Agriculture at the Agricultural Research Service um, in high school and in college. And when I was going to college at Colorado State University, I got my degree in biochemistry, and there was a single semester course um, on food, uh, food science, brewing, and food science that's since become an entire major uh, and discipline over at Colorado State University. But that's originally how I got introduced to beer, plus a little home brewing on the side, um, so to speak. And then I got hired into packaging at Odell when I graduated and has been here for, this year will be 14 years. Ben, that is a great run. And of course, I think we've seen a lot of growth with Odell's uh, uh, in the time that you've been with them, correct? That's correct. Uh, when I started here, we were doing about 50,000 barrels of beer. And uh, for those listening, um, a typical keg that you might get is a half a barrel. So think about 100,000 of those. Uh, and and this year, we're probably slated to do just over uh, 100,000. And our, our peak was probably about 130,000 barrels of beer. You know, Eli, the, the typical consumer... They hear things like microbrewery, regional brewery, a nanobrewery. Uh, what is the difference in all of those terminologies? Um, well, it really depends on who you talk to. Uh, the Brewers Association, which is the lobbying group for the uh, craft brewing industry, 
um, really kind of sets the standard within our industry for those definitions. Um, and they limit uh, a certain amount of volume as well as ownership of the organization to help define some of those things. Um, for us, we're independently owned regional craft brewery, which means we distribute out of our state. We distribute to 20 states um, and we are independently owned. So all of our ownership is within the company. Very good. Hey, Eli, this is Greg, and I have a question about um, how beer is made. You know, I, I've had an opportunity to go into a few small breweries in Colorado and see the process, but for our listeners, uh, both local and nationwide, they, they may never have had that opportunity. So can you kind of walk through just the steps of making beer? Absolutely. Um, from a really high level, uh, it is an agricultural product, like you mentioned, Greg, uh, there is so much that happens at the plant level that really drives what we do here. But in essence, what we do is we feed yeast. We feed, <laughs> we feed yeast with sugar that we extract from uh, barley um, primarily, but also some from wheat. Um, so that barley has been malted, uh, and that malting process sort of tricks the barley into becoming a plant, and then the maltsters will arrest that development to make the sugar available for our use as brewers in the brew house where we can extract that through our brewing process to create wort, which is the, the sugar water that fuels fermentation. Everything else that we do, um, adding hops, um, how we, what types of grains that we use, the type of roast or whatnot to those grains, all the flavor and aroma contributions are really for us. Um, and is kind of a byproduct of that process, but has become the primary reason we do what we do. So in essence, from a very high level, we extract sugar from malted grains. Um, we use that to feed yeast, and we add uh, hops for... Great. I just have one question about Fun. that. That's <laughs> a great explanation. Thank you. Uh, what? How long does that process take normally, start to finish? Um, a normal brewing probably about eight hours for batch of beer, and that's all and of the varying sizes of sophistications, but roughly in that uh, realm. We have at Odell um, one big brew house. We have a Browcon brew house that produces about 130 to 150 barrels of beer every batch, um, but they can operate three or four batches at a time. So it, it's a batch process that can become continuous depending on the technology of your brew house. We have three other brew houses that really just do a single batch at a time. Those are our pilot facilities. Um, one is in Fort Collins, and we have two tap rooms in Denver, one in uh, the historic Five Points District and one in Sloan's Lake that also has a restaurant attached to it. And then from that, from there, it takes about a week or so for the beer to ferment, again, kind of regardless of size. And then depending on the type of beer you're making, um, the cold conditioning will be about another week or so. So, uh, and then it goes to packaging. So, if you're talking soup to nuts, you're looking at probably about two, two weeks, two and a half weeks. If you're making a lager, there's going to be more conditioning time associated with that. Eli, that sounds great. Jackson here again. You know, I love the way you explain the 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 process. You know, I'm a chef by trade, but. I think when we're making different types of beer, you're really just following a recipe, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, there is a recipe um, 
it, that you really need to be consistent about. And there's a lot more um, like biochemistry happening. So there's less sort of uh, what's in the cupboard, what can we make happening at in our big brew house. That's really where our R&D systems come alive, those three systems that I mentioned. That's where you can kind of really um, play a lot more in that space that's more akin, I would suppose, to cooking. Um, where, where you can add way more uh, raw materials and ingredients outside of kind of the almost restrictions of brewing compared to, um, you know, uh, a, a, a more of a, like a restaurant space. So, yeah, you have to follow a recipe pretty, pretty much to the nose. I think a lot of folks, when they visit a brewery, are surprised about the amount of engineering it takes to make consistent beer at this level. Very, very cool. Hey, you know... Um... You mentioned that you were in on the ground floor at CSU with their food science program. They are the state of the art today in the uh, in the state of Colorado, no doubt about it. I'm at Metropolitan State University where we have uh, uh, the School of Hospitality. You know, it's not food science. Food science is, is really the background behind the food. We just teach them how to cook it and eat it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's a little bit different. But speaking of cooking and eating, you know, uh, we do a lot of work with wine and food pairing. But uh, I've done some work in the past with beer and food pairing. So um, uh, is there any discussion about that in the Odell team? Oh, yeah. I mean, we do uh, food pairings quite regularly. Uh, we also happen to have, you mentioned wine, we also happen to have a, a winery right next door that we started a couple years ago. And that's really kind of opened up what we can do in regards to food and beverage pairing. So we can have a dinner where we've got a beer and a wine and a meal <laughs> attached to it, um, kind of full service in some ways. But yeah, we've been doing those sorts of educational outreach programs for as long as I've been here. Yeah. Like, Beer dinners, beer dinners are one of those things that, um, you know, you have a beverage with a five-course meal, and you're pretty much guaranteed to have a good time. Yeah. You know, uh, I hate to call you on this, but, you know, could you give us an idea of three courses? You know, what would be a beer, like maybe it's a pale ale, and, and what would that be paired with? Or if you have, like, the 90 shilling, one of my favorites, what are we going to pair with that? So can you give us an idea of some of your successful pairings in the past? Oh, yeah, put me on the spot. Um, let, me, let me try and uh, think about that for just a hot second. I feel like... There's kind of two day ways you can go, and I'm sure you've experienced this. When, when pairing, you're either trying to complement um, or contrast. So with a beer like 90 Schilling, um, you could, because of the multi-character of it, you get some nice cherry notes from the East Esters, a little bit of caramel character. It would probably hold up to something a little bit heavier, maybe some lamb or something like that um, with a little bit of char on it. And or you could go in another way and have it be a little bit more of a, con a sharp contrast and probably have it with, um, I'm going to say, something with some nuts involved, maybe perhaps like a, a salmon salad, but has some heavy, you know, walnut action there. That'll that'll bleed right into the mailer reactions happening in the in the kettle and from the mall. So that would be one for 90 shilling. I think one of the ones we we make a lot of IPAs here, and IPAs in general have a broad flavor spectrum. 
And so those are really fun to pair with because you can get uh, a beer like our Mountain Standard IPA, which has quite a bit of pineapple character to it and tropical notes, and you can pair that with um, you know anything perhaps of uh, a more Asian influence, and that's going to go really well. Or you have our Odell IPA in general, which is one of our flagship beers now that's more of a citrus focus um, and has a little bit more of a backbone to it, a little more malt and alcohol there. And so that can pair well um, with anything that's going to go nice with um, some, some citrus. So um, maybe you can help me out with that one. I'm drawing a blank. But no, you, you know, know what? Going here. <laughs> it, it, it is so different from, from a wine and food pairing, which is uh, uh, all very interesting. Uh, I love it. Um, you know, the stories behind IPAs are very interesting. Do you know the history there? Yes. Um, the IPA, which stands for India Pale Ale, was originally developed as a preservative method for shipping um, beer uh, from uh, the UK to uh, India. So in order for the beer to be preserved, they would add more hops, which are a natural preservative, and increase the alcohol content, which also helps to keep bacteria and spoilage at bay. And so that was the reasoning behind it, and it turns out that the soldiers there really enjoyed the character, and when they came back to England would try to find that beer, couldn't find it, and then started kind of the character and the style um, at least that's the that's the story I've heard. Very good, and that's uh, almost the same story that I've heard. You know, the theory was <laughs> that uh, a British soldier would be guaranteed a liter of beer in his daily rations. So as they're loading up a ship and, you know, sailing around Africa, you know, the Suez Canal is not built yet, and where is the beer? Probably in wooden casks down in the hold of the ship, you know, and... It's a long journey. It's uh, 60 to 90 days to India. Sure, that beer's going to get a little skunky. And so uh, the hops would just kind of mask the flavor there. So that, that opens up the door to double IPAs. Now we're really hopping up uh, the beer. Do you do a lot of doubles or just mostly uh, single IPAs? Oh, I think we've probably got an IPA for almost any IPA drinker. Um, we have uh, our Mercenary is our double IPA that we make. Uh, we also have an entire line of what we call our limited series of beers, and they are mostly stronger alcohol IPAs. They won't, might not necessarily say double or imperial, which are common uh, nomenclature for higher alcohol oh, IPAs, nice. but they're all going to be in the 7 plus percent. So 7 Seven, eight percent. Uh, our juicy tempo, pulp theory. These are all examples of uh, higher alcohol IPAs that we make. Very nice. I like that ABV alcohol by volume. That's that's a, that's usually the first thing I'm looking for on a label. <laughs> hey, yeah, Eli, I'm one a of pretty good indication of where your night's headed. I um, am kind of a beer drinking coward. I don't like to try new beers because I don't want to be disappointed. And so I just kind of go back to the same thing over and over again. And I'm also an odd nut in that once I uh, eat food, then my palate's now contaminated and I can't taste the flavors of the beer anymore. So I don't like to drink beer with food. I'm kind of an odd nut that way. But my question for you is, 
there is a pretty big spectrum with IPAs, I've noticed, more than even like lagers. Lagers, there's a small spectrum, but I like pretty much any lager in the summertime. But in the winter, if I go out and I try a new IPA, I mean, it could be great. It could be terrible. So um, I guess you've answered the question about, you know, there's a lot of different IPAs. But what I know, here's the question, what I know um, if I'm going to like that IPA based on a description on the menu, like perhaps how they describe the beer or the alcohol content? Um, I think you bring up a really good point. You know, there's there's a lot of good beer out there. Um, just like there's a lot of good wine out there, and there's a lot of bad beer and a lot of bad wine. And I think the the descriptors are a good guide, but in my experience, the brand itself is also important. So having a brand or um, a brewery that you trust and you know that they're paying attention um, to all the little details is really going to is really going to steer you in the right direction. You know, if you happen to know if you're like more citrusy things or more tropical things um, or more bitter things, that's certainly going to come out on the menu. Um, but the reality is, a lot of these aromatic compounds that we're working really, really hard to get into the beer are going to degrade over time by their very nature of being aromatic. So I would say that your best bet is going with a brand that you know and trust and also one that's brewed uh, as close to where you're going to be consuming it. I see. Very good. Very good explanation. I have one more question about uh, the R&D process. Um, In the food business, which I've been at for 30 years in plants, and we are always coming out with new products. And I would say only 10% of them or less actually make it to the market and thrive and do well. The rest of them are just like failures, but you have to try. You don't know until you try. So tell us about the R&D process with beer. Like how long has that taken? Is it like my experience in the meat industry that sometimes you hit a home run and sometimes for whatever reason, even if it's a good product, it just doesn't take off? Yeah, I would say that's probably, at least in my experience, true almost regardless when you've been involved in R&D. You know, there's a kind of a classic um, explanation from uh, from the Apple Corporation where they have a huge stack, <laughs> a huge stack of um, ideas that never happened and the two that actually come out of it. So I think it's probably universal across. But for beer, for us, it takes, because of the lead time on packaging materials and um, art development and to really get a recipe we're, we're excited about, it takes us about nine months to go from this is the type, generally speaking, this is the type of beer we'd like to make to having a beer available in market um, that we're going to distribute. Now, if it's something that's just going to be over the bar, we can do that in those two and a half weeks or so that we talked about. We can make a beer, have it out, and you can get it at draft in any one of our locations. Um, but to go full distribution it takes that amount of time great response uh, eli hey listen you mentioned the tap rooms in uh, sloan's lake and in five points are they brewing there or are they just uh, uh using the beers that you're making up in fort collins they are absolutely brewing uh, both in five points uh, and at sloan's lake we when we um decided to move in that direction to expand our foot our brewing footprint we will knew that that was a key piece we didn't just want to open up um a restaurant or a bar where we shipped beer Um, they do have some of our distributing beers as like a point of sale or a a place where people can do hand sales or be exposed to some of our um, core brands um, or brand priorities but largely far and away what they're selling over the bar is beer that is brewed in five points or sloan's lake 
Excellent. That's nice. Talk about being a local product. That's fantastic. You know, we're coming out of COVID, which we really didn't understand when we went into it, but that produced a lot of challenges. Um, and I know that, uh, you know, from a, uh, a beer distribution perspective, all of a sudden every hotel and restaurant in the state was going to be shut down. Um, and I'm sure that that had to affect the way you were producing. Probably the first thing to go was kegs. We, we don't need kegs anymore because the places that serve keg beer are going to be closed. Uh, can you walk us through what your battle plan was during COVID? Right. I mean, well, first and foremost, we were thinking about our people. Um, and, you know, we, as a food manufacturer, were classified under frontline workers. So we had to walk through what that looked like, just like everyone else. Um, but once we had figured out what was, you know, the current steady state, um, you're absolutely right. I mean, with no bars and restaurant, our draft business, just like every other brewery, pretty much tanked. Um, but because everyone's at home and also wanting to have a beer, uh, our can business went up considerably. So for us, because of where we're at, um, we certainly had supply chain issues just like anyone else who is working in a supply chain during that time. But we were more or less able to switch our volume over from kegs uh, into cans and kind of remain a profitable business uh, through COVID. Good for you. Fantastic. Hey, I have a question about, you mentioned kegs and cans. What What is your advice or your expertise on the difference in taste between the same beer consumed from a can versus a bottle versus a draft? Ooh, yeah. So we do our taste panel every day, um, and we have all, all three of those. And when we first launched the can line, um, there was hot debate over this exact question. So I'm glad that you asked it. Uh, in my opinion, I feel like the can produces um, a smoother mouthfeel overall um, than draft or bottle. Um, there's something about the way that it's filled, the packaging equipment, um, that really produces kind of more of a creamier mouthfeel. It's a little bit softer. Um, bottles I find to be a little bit uh, like pricklier, perhaps. Um, and then draft can really depend on the account, whoever's pouring it. The thing with draft is once it's tapped, you're, um, as long as it doesn't get untapped, you're in a good spot. Um, but if people tap it, untap it, put something on, the beer can oxidize pretty quickly. So that is one thing to watch out for, um, especially at uh, accounts where they're not seeing a lot of turnover in their beer. So draft for me is probably my preferred because I know if it's fresh or not right off the bat, it's pretty obvious. Um, and that's something that typically um, is a good litmus test of how that establishment treats their, uh, treats their accounts. Excellent. Eli, you know, I'm a former restaurant manager before I drifted into teaching. And I can remember every Tuesday morning at 9 o'clock, uh, the old man would come in. He's the guy that comes in to clean the beer taps. Um, so do you have an in-house service that does that, or is that outsourced to a, a company that that's what they specialize in? How does that work? Right. So that's a, that's a good point. Um, because the beer is running through those uh, through those lines, they can pick up microcontamination, and it can really impact uh, the customer's experience with that beer. 
So over our history, we've gone back and forth. We used to have line cleaning uh, in-house. We currently have it out of house, and we pay for a service for that, as far as I'm aware. But in our tap rooms ourselves, we still do that. Our, we still do that. Um, we have control there, and so we're cleaning our lines regularly, sanitizing, um, running chemical through it that needs to be, making sure all that's cleaned out before we run any beer through it, um, evaluating the seals lines to ensure there's no oxygen ingress, which can lead to oxidation, which is the most common uh, off-flavoring beer. Excellent. So it is, yeah. That's great. Hey, um, you know, I've got a nephew who works for T.J. Sheehan, which is a beer distributor in upstate New York. And um, we got into a conversation about shipping beer, bottles versus cans. He says the weight difference is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, can you shed any light on that? Yeah. Um, one of the great things about cans is in a six-pack, it's physically a lot smaller. The same amount of beer can be put in to the same, to a considerably less volume, like a smaller footprint. And when you're in the business of shipping largely water back and forth, um, that's really important. And the can's a lot lighter as well. So one of the things that we did strategically at Odell is we limited, as soon as we got our can line, our distribution of bottles to reduce our carbon footprint long term. Um, so we stopped offering bottles out of state. We only offer bottles uh, within the state of Colorado. So that's how impactful that really is. That's a clever way to do that. I like that idea. Hey, Eli, is uh, beer a regional thing like food? There's so many regional foods. Like we've had a show up about green chili uh, Colorado and New Mexico love green chili but you go east not so much what about beer is beer and the taste for beer also do you feel regional um, I think that's that's an interesting um, comment because I do feel like there are very successful regional breweries who have a very specific flavor profile and a lot of breweries that flavor profile can be established by the yeast that they use um, because broadly speaking, a lot of the malt comes from the same sort of regions. The hops come from the same sort of regions. So how you select your raw materials is absolutely critical, but the yeast becomes kind of a house flavor almost. Um, so I think that can really drive a lot of the regional differences. And then there's kind of a, a more modern example of that would be in the IPA world, where we've kind of got West Coast IPAs, which tend to be a little bit more bitter, tend to be clearer, have a little bit more of a malt backbone to them. Um, an East Coast IPA, which tends to be pretty hazy, tropical, fruity, really thick. And then what we've come out with, and others as well, is a mountain-style IPA. Our mountain standard IPA is somewhere in the middle. So it's um, not super thick. Um, it does have some bitterness to it. Um, but really, it's mostly about like a tropical um, and stone fruit aroma. Great. Thank you. Thanks for that explanation. Hey, we're already out of time. I appreciate you coming on today. Now, what if our listeners here want a taste for more? How do they find out more about your brewery? Maybe you could share your website and then your locations again. Absolutely. Um, you can visit us at any time at odellbrewing.com. Um, you can email us at cheers at odellbrewing.com, or you can come into any three of our tap rooms, the tap room in Fort Collins, Colorado, and Lincoln Avenue, the tap room uh, and brewery down in Five Points on Larimer, and the uh, 
tap room and restaurant down at Five Points on Perry Street. Great. Thank you. Hey, Eli, we really enjoyed having you on Food Chat. We appreciate it. You take care. Cheers. <laughs> Thanks so much, Greg and Jackson. Appreciate it. Today's Food Chat episode was brought to you by RanchFreshMeats.com. RanchFreshMeats.com finds the best quality beef in the marketplace, but not only beef, bison and chicken and lamb and all kinds of great proteins that come from family farms that we know personally. And if not the farm, then the USDA plant. So go to RanchFreshMeats.com and sign up for the weekly newsletter because at the every week we pull a name at random and give away a box of meat. RanchFreshMeats.com Here's to the farmer that plants the fields in the spring The turn from green to that harvest honey Pull one up for the banker downtown They got him on his feet with handshake of money Here's to the farmer's wife That loves him every night Raising a son, raising a daughter Gather round the table, send it up to the Father. Somehow they get closer when times get harder. Here's to 